This program is made possible by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Campfires is a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize's board and the Federation of State Humanities Council in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. The initiative seeks to illuminate the impact of journalism and the humanities on American life today, to imagine their future, and to inspire new generations to consider the values represented by the body of the Pulitzer Prize-winning work. Campfire's initiative is also supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the Pulitzer Prize Board in Columbia University. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Thomas Jefferson is often portrayed as a hopelessly enigmatic figure, a riddle, a man so riven with contradictions that he's almost impossible to know. Lauded as the most articulate voice of American freedom and equality, even as he held people, including his own family, in bondage, Jefferson is variably described as a hypocrite, an atheist, or a simple-minded proponent of limited government who expected all Americans to be farmers forever. Now, Harvard Law professor and historian and winner of the Pulitzer Prize, Annette Gordon-Reed, has teamed up with fellow Jefferson scholar Peter S. Onoff to present a character study that dispels many cliches that have accumulated over the years about our third president. Their new book, Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination explores Jefferson's vision of himself, the American Revolution, Christianity, slavery, and race. Today's program is part of the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative. Annette Gordon-Reed is Charles Warren Professor of American Legal History at Harvard Law School, Professor of History in the History Department, and Carol K. Forsheimer, Professor in the Radcliffe Institute. And uh, she joins us for the hour today. Annette Gordon-Reed, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, let me start with uh, a question about the, the stakes of uh, today's uh, discussion. seems like, at least this is my characterization, uh, it seems to be higher stakes with Jefferson than with many of the founding fathers. All sides want to claim him, and the criticism is, is of higher stakes as well. Do you agree with that characterization, and if so, why? I would say so. Uh, I think that people look to Jefferson because of the Declaration of Independence. It's considered to be America's, America's creed. And the words that mean so much to us, the famous preamble about, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And this is how we see ourselves. And so he is held to a very, very high standard. Um, And, you know, he has a home, Monticello, that's on the money, uh, so to speak, on the nickel. And he is a part of our lives on a daily daily basis, but also once a year when we celebrate um, American independence. So... He is, of all the figures uh, of, I think, of founding fathers, he's the one who people look to the most and have the most identification with, but at the same time who have some of the biggest arguments with because he was the Declaration, but he also was a slaveholder. So those two things are, are, are looked at and, and discussed, and people wonder about him. There are many contradictions. Some people charge him with hypocrisy. You know, he was a revolutionary, Republican, small r, also a slaveholder, many other uh, contradictions. But you say in the book Mm -hmm. that this charge of hypocrisy is too shallow. And you want to say because it's uh, far too easy on his times, on his fellow white Americans, and on all of us today. Uh, 
and I want to explore those as we go along. That's that on all of us today. Yes, yeah. I think that many of us have intellectual beliefs that we don't adhere to, that we don't have uh, either because of, of habits uh, of mind, because of other priorities, uh, intellectual beliefs that we don't live up to. Uh, and we're, that we don't really believe them. But for one reason or another, uh, the lack of, of willpower, uh, competing uh, concerns, uh, we don't live the way we say we think we ought to live. And, so, and I think the same thing is true of Jefferson, and certainly he was not on, on issues of slavery, on issues of race, when you're talking about his fellow Virginians, he was, some, he was in the middle. I mean, there were people who didn't believe that slavery was wrong and never questioned it. Uh, he, as a Virginian, did question it, did believe slavery was wrong, but did not go the extra step and devote his life to eradicating it. And then there were a few people who did free their slaves uh, and who worked for emancipation, but those were a very, very tiny number of people, and most of them were not in Virginia. So what we're trying to do in this book is to try to capture Jefferson as he saw himself, not just use the book as a way of sort of you know, taking out all of our own aggressions on Jefferson and sort of showing how good we are uh, as compared to him, but actually figure out who this person was, who had his hand in so many different aspects of American life. So we wanted a fresh sort of reboot, uh, sort of a, a fresh look at this person. Uh, I want to have you talk about the, the title of, of the book, Most Blessed of the uh, Patriarchs. This uh, comes from a letter, interestingly, to Angelica Schuyler Church, who's a sister-in-law to Hamilton, his great rival. Yes, yes. And when we started writing this book, we had no idea that people would ever have any occasion to know who Angelica Schuyler Church was. But, of course, she's one of the Schuyler sisters uh, from the, the hit musical Hamilton. And, uh, and we started writing this way before the musical you know, opened, uh, but yes, he's writing to her after he has been defeated in the cabinet battles that he had with Angelica's uh, brother-in-law, Alexander Hamilton. And he's telling her about going back to Monticello and how he's looking forward to it. And he says at one point that if his daughters come to live near him and are settled with husbands and you know a family, that he will consider himself as blessed as the most blessed of the patriarchs. So this is something he's calling himself. We wanted to make sure, uh, we put this in quotes on the book because we wanted to, to let people know that we weren't calling him that. Uh, he was calling himself that. And in another letter, he describes himself as living at Monticello as uh, an, an antediluvian patriarch, uh, living among his um, family and, and farm, um, like an antediluvian patriarch, and we thought, that's an interesting way to describe yourself, because he's also considered the apostle of liberty. He's also considered a Republican, a small r, uh, and by people who hated him at the time, a dangerous radical. Uh, well, patriarch conjures up an, you know, an image of ancient times, and here was a person who was supposed to be forward-thinking. How did he see himself as a patriarch? Uh, I should also say patriarch today is kind of a dirty word, uh, patriarchy. Uh, it's a word we're questioning. But he didn't question it. He thought patriarch, uh, himself as a patriarch, 
he could do this in a good way. Uh, he considered himself to be a benevolent patriarch to his immediate white family, to what he would have construed as a version of family, the enslaved people at, the, at Monticello, the sort of Roman notion of family, your entire household. And that's how he saw himself. And he didn't see this as, we might look at this and say, you know, come on. But he was actually serious in thinking of himself in this role, acting under the best of his abilities, acting in a way that he thought was benevolent. Hmm. As you point out, uh, antediluvian patriarchs, uh, they had a wife, maybe more than one, concubines, slaves, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. ruled autocratically, um, very special status, and uh, much of that goes uh, against uh, the ideals, Republican ideals. Exactly, and that's the society he was born into um, at the top of the social pyramid. He was a white male from a high-status family. His father uh, was prosperous. He was given the best education that you could have in Virginia at the time. He was smart. He was tall, which was something that you know was important at that time. It may be important today. Uh, he had all of these kinds of things going for him, and he was literally the actual, I should say, master of of people. So this image of himself, you know, he is, you know, he has an image of him, a self image of someone who is powerful and can be an actor in the world. He also saw himself as an adherent to the Enlightenment. You know, he he loved to read. Uh, He loved to take in information, and he saw himself as a part of a group of people, not just in America, but in Europe, as well as who were adherents to to the Enlightenment, who believed in science and progress. And we think, Peter and I think, that that's one of the hardest things to get about Jefferson, is that he actually did believe that the world would get better and better as time moved on. And I think well, we think we're a bit cynical than that. Uh, maybe we're more wise than that because we realize that progress may come in a zigzag, you know, or it could be two steps forward, three steps back, and then you, the process is in fits and starts. But he was certain that things would get better and better, just as in, that science moved forward, the world, uh, which he saw through uh, uh, the tenets of science, would get better political science in the sense that people would grow in their capacity to be citizens if they were educated that way. That's why he wanted a public education system for, you know, grammar school up through high school. Uh, He had to settle for the University of Virginia because they rejected his public education plan. But no, he he really did believe in progress and and that things would get better. And, And we look at that and say that's you know, he can't have really believed that because we don't believe it. And I say we, I, many people don't believe it, um, that it's, that it's inevitable, that progress is inevitable. Uh, I wonder if you could expand on that. That's It, it does, we, we do have to bridge that gulf, have to make an active effort to bridge that gulf, because we live in pessimistic times, you know, cynicism and skepticism. Exactly, exactly. So you hear, see somebody who has this enthusiasm and this optimism about, the capacity to change, um, and you just don't believe it. You figure, oh, he's just trying to, he's trying to, you know, to kid us. He's trying to, to snow us here, but he doesn't really know who we are, right? I mean, he doesn't. I mean, he knows that there's a legacy out there. He has a legacy, and he knows that there will be a future, but he doesn't know 
that we would have had. He doesn't know what we're going to what we've gone through, and he doesn't know that we are generally much more skeptical about. I say I would say uh, I can't speak for everybody, but I would say my observation is that most people are more skeptical about the notion of progress, and that was all that he was about. Not only in his personal life, but and sometimes people say almost to the point of being deluded when he thinks that he's actually a wealthy person and he doesn't realize that, um, you know, just because you had a lot of land, when land prices are, are, are low, uh, doesn't mean that you're really wealthy. Um, but in his own personal life, he saw the future of the United States as inevitably positive and that we would be, he really did believe in American exceptionalism. He thought that America was going to be the, a leader of the world. The American Republic would be an example to the rest of the world. And uh, so that that's the faith that kind of sustained him. And it's what made the most central part of his life, his participation in the American Revolution, so salient um, uh, to him. Uh, this was going to be an experiment that would show something to the world. Another part of his life that... It, uh that I was reminded of, learned in the book, that seems very salient to, to today, very apropos of today, especially after this uh, bruising presidential campaign. Um, you write that he could never admit that he was a partisan, much less a party leader. <laughs> and and it seems like that was, uh, was that because of an enlightenment ideals? It, we weren't supposed to divide into parties, but we we did uh, quite uh, quite soon. And, uh, and Jefferson... Though you're right, he didn't like conflict. Was a very good infighter, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. very good at this conflict. Uh, he has a correspondence with um, Abigail Adams. Very interesting. You you recount this, uh, unbeknownst to John Adams, he had this correspondence with with Abigail Adams. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, he uh, Abigail Adams was trying to get him to admit that that he was at fault for something. She admitted on her side that the the Adams had some part in this in in this acrimonious uh, campaign of 1800. Uh, but he would never admit that. No. No, he did not see himself or did not want to see himself as a partisan. Because as you, you're right, uh, the original idea was that people of goodwill or men of goodwill at that particular time who actually were patriots, who cared about the country, could come together and do things that were in the best interest of the country. The idea that you would divide up into a party and care more about your party's fortunes than you did the fortunes of the nation, uh, was anathema. And that was, so nobody thought, people thought that inevitably if you had parties, that's what would, that would be what would happen. People would become, would have their primary allegiance to whatever they called themselves uh, under the rubric of a party. So he preferred to think of this, and he talked about the Republicans, again, the Democratic Republican Party, that's what you know, he's the, the considered to be the founder of, that they were friends. And, you know, we get together with our various friends, and it was all based upon this notion of affection for one another, but also affection for the nation. And, no, when he's talking to, to Abigail, he ins- keeps insisting that, you know, I always loved you and John. Um, these things, that these policy differences we had really did not destroy that attachment that we had. And she's like, but wait a minute, you know, you said some, you had, you and your partisans, actually, he never said stuff, but it was mainly his surrogates, said some pretty rough things about uh, John Adams. And she's much more realistic about 
what happens when people, you know, do become, have this close allegiance to parties. They forget uh, that they're dealing with human beings on the other side. And if you come at people in a really, really hard way, you're going to hurt their feelings. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that he didn't want to acknowledge that because he had a very, very thin skin himself and could be easily hurt. Um, but in talking to her, he preferred to maintain or to sort of assure her that despite their policy differences, he had always loved her husband and he'd always loved her. Are there any lessons, do you think, from, from that you know, the campaign of 1800, just to take an example there, and, and the aftermath, and how long it took for, you know, the breach to heal between uh, Jefferson and Adams. Thankfully, it, it did finally mm-hmm. finally heal. Um, yeah. And, and today's, you know, the, this the last several years have been very bruising, and uh, and now, you know, we're, we're talking about trying to, to come back together. Well, I, I suppose the lesson is the dangers of too great partisanship. Uh, partisanship is is a part of any political system. I mean, so let me let me say that people are going to have different ideas about things. Uh, but it, there's a way, and the United States had it for a good part of the 20th century, where even though people were in different parties, they could be bipartisan about certain things. Foreign policy. You don't deal with foreign nations against a party in the United States, for example. You know, that the partisanship sort of ended at the, the, you know, the water's edge. Uh, there were many of, many of the, the great, um, you know, social programs, uh, things that came into being. They, they, had bi- they had bipartisan support. The civil rights measures had reports, uh, had support of Democrats and Republicans. So people have, you know, had an experience of reaching across the aisle well into the 20th century, but that has sort of fallen apart. And I don't usually like to engage, in, and people always ask me, well, what would the founders have thought about this thing or the other? But I think they might be, I will do it to this extent, uh, dismayed by where we are now, where it seems to be you know, a, a situation where individuals are willing to sort of hurt the country in order to maintain or get power. Uh, it is exactly what Madison and Federalist Ten is concerned about: is factions. Uh, this is where this is where we are at the moment, and at least we've recognized it. And it may be I'm going to try to be Jeffersonian in my optimism. Uh, we might go back to fighting normally because, I, as I said, I do think parties have to fight, but there ought to be some basic things that. We say that this is about is about America. The country has to come before um, your party. Um, so I'm hoping that that might happen. Right, right, right. Yeah, we'll yeah. That's, as, as you say, Jeffersonian optimism. We we can embrace that. Uh, yeah. Just before we leave this, we'll take a break. We, when we come back, I want to talk about uh, the issue of slavery. And uh, you write in the book what uh, you know uh, Jefferson's children with Sally Hemings what was to be their place in his American dream. So we'll we'll talk about that. But I want to, just before we leave this, um, I didn't know this about the Alien and Sedition Act. This is one of the black marks that, that, uh, you know, we we put against John Adams. He signed this into law. Um, It it, uh, outlawed criticism, I think, of government officials, except the vice president. And the vice president was Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That was interesting. It happened to be the vice president. You're right. 
so that that was a very interesting note that I that I, that I learned. Uh, yeah, indication of, mm-hmm. of, of the times. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take a break when we come back uh, more with acclaimed uh, uh, Harvard Law professor and historian Annette uh, Gordon-Reed. Uh, she, along with a fellow Jefferson scholar Peter Onuf, uh, is author of Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination, which explores Jefferson's vision of himself, the American Revolution, Christianity, slavery, and race. And uh, today's uh, program is a part of the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative. Annette Gordon-Reed uh, won the Pulitzer for her uh, book from 2008, The Hemingses of uh, Monticello, An American Family, that also won the National uh, Book Award. She's author of several other books. And uh, still a uh, forthcoming is a book on uh, Andrew Johnson. Uh, that'll be interesting. That's uh, That'll be coming up. Uh, more following this break. If you've been paying attention since last Tuesday, you know there's a feeling in the Rust Belt that politicians just aren't listening to their voters. When they want us to vote for them, they're all about the people then. But after that, they do absolutely nothing for the people. I'm Kai Rizdal. Why the Rust Belt went even more red this year. That is next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members, and support for arts reporting on Utah Public Radio comes from the Marie Eccles Kane Foundation Russell family, strengthening the arts and humanities throughout northern Utah. This program is made possible by a grant from the Pulitzer Prizes Centennial Campfires Initiative for collaboration between Utah Public Radio, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We are uh, talking about a very interesting new book, Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, um, and the subtitle um, of, uh, of the book is uh, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination. The authors are Peter S. Onoff and uh, Annette Gordon-Reed. Um, we have Annette Gordon-Reed uh, with us uh, for the hour. You can join this uh, conversation, we hope that you will, with your question or comment at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com. 800-826-1495, toll free, or to the email upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. I want to start the, this segment, Annette Gordon-Reed, with uh, talking about the, popular, the popularity of the musical uh, Hamilton. Um but I think it has driven some people to to the books. It did me. Um, I, I went mm-hmm. then and, and read um, um, Ron Chernow's uh, book on, on Hamilton, which I had missed. Uh, do you think it will uh, drive people to more reading in American history in general? Oh, I think so, definitely. It, it will certainly, I think we'll get some historians out of it uh, among young people who really, really do love the music and have taken to it and have made it, you know, a number one seller. Um, there's a program here in New York City um, that uh, goes into the schools and they have engaged students through the, through the play and um, there's a curriculum that's devoted to it and the kids write their own, you know, lyrics, write their own stories about not just figures in the play but also other figures who lived during that time period. So I think it definitely has struck a chord among young people, and that's what you really want. You want, at least I do, you want people, young people, to get people when they're young uh, into the habit of reading history and understanding why it's important. So, yeah, definitely. 
it's been a, a great boon, not just to Hamilton, but I think to the to the study of the founders in general, Washington and Jefferson. It seems like this is my view that Jefferson has never really waned in in, uh, in terms of our interest in him. Hamilton did seem to go through a period of, of neglect, quote unquote, and then you know, then it's been revived. I wonder if you agree with that. Why that is? Oh yeah. Oh no. Um, Jefferson has always been um, a, a figure of attention, whether it was negative or positive. I mean, he's always been there as a person that people have been arguing with. Hamilton had his moment in the 19th century after the Civil War and up till, actually, FDR. FDR was the person who brought Jefferson back in a big way uh, because he, he loved Jefferson. And, you know, he did the, he's responsible for the memorial. He had his, uh, his version of Camp David was at a place called Kenwood, which is was a part of Jefferson's estate. Um, so FDR brings him back. He's on the nickel and so forth. Hamilton, I think because he was associated with elites, and rightly so, actually, uh, was much more of a controversial figure for some people who were interested in you know, democracy or interested in the common common man. Uh and it's sort of interesting to have him back now at a moment when people are critiquing, you know, the inequality. Uh, he is—he was sort of a proponent of it. I don't think that people, you don't get that from musical. Um, the musical is more or less about his, um, uh, you know, revolutionary career. Some of it was the cabinet battles, but you don't really get his, his actual politics from the play because that's not what, they're, what, what it's really about. But uh, yeah, he's a figure who'll be back now. I don't. It's hard to know how long he will last, um, because Jefferson is. Uh, you don't have to be interested in politics to be interested in Jefferson. I mean, there's Jefferson in music, Jefferson in, you know, agriculture, Jefferson in so many different things, and you don't really have that with Hamilton. It's pretty much one thing. Uh, so we'll see. The musical will last, but I don't know about. Hamilton <laughs> as a as a figure of of attention. Yeah, and hopefully it gets young people into into the history as you said. Um, oh yeah. I, I wanted to jump to talking about uh, slavery. You and, and you get into you try to get into Jefferson's mind, see see how he viewed things. Um, and so you know, famously, uh, he had children with Sally Hemings, and you write uh, what was to be their place in his expansive uh, American dream. What, what what did he think? About, uh, first of all, his children well, and then s- the slaves. Well, the thing about his children is that under Virginia law, they were white. Uh, it followed the rule that if you were seven-eighths white, and they were because of their, you know, if you go through their genealogy, they were seven-eighths white, they would be considered white. And he wrote this letter to a man named Francis Gray, uh, who would ask him about when a black person could become a white person through through um, interracial, you know, interracial sex or whatever. And he says, he does this complex calculation, and he says that when a person who is white is freed, they become a free American citizen. So he would have thought that his children, he considered his children as, once they were emancipated, as free white American citizens. Uh, and three of them 
actually did. Two, two of them immediately went into the white world after they left Monticello, and we don't know what happened to their families. The remaining two were freed at his death, and one of them, well, both of them lived in the black community for a time, and one of them, Eston, um, the youngest, went into the white community, moved to Wisconsin, changed his name from Eston Hemings to F- Eston Jefferson, and his family, his children, became, you know, Jeffersons and lived as white people and became very prosperous, as a matter of fact. So it took one generation, uh, but his grandchildren were living as white people. One was a lieutenant, lieutenant colonel at Vicksburg um, who wrote dispatches back from the battlefield and became a, a very, very wealthy cotton merchant. The other one was a wealthy hotel owner. Uh, they sort of lived the American dream once they went into the white world. So Jefferson's vision was for them was that they would be white and they would take their place in the world. His vision for other African Americans, however, was that that there was no way to have a, uh, this is the part that makes people uncomfortable with Jefferson or hate to dislike Jefferson or dislike Jefferson, is that he didn't think that blacks and whites could live together without conflict. And enslaved people should be free. They should go be expatriated. They should have their own country. And then the United States and that country could deal with each other as equal nations. But having blacks and whites live together would lead to conflict. And, you know, we condemn that, that he says this, but actually we have been in conflict for quite quite a good part of our history. It hasn't been easy. So here's one place where his optimism failed him. He was, uh, I don't know that he ever, he never joined the American Colonization Society, but he did, he, did he subscribe to the, the view it was supposed to be emancipate and emigrate? So, you know, you free, yeah, that was free it. the slaves and so then never, ship you know, them off somewhere. Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing. Maybe he may not have been much of a joiner, but he, you know, he believed that, and Madison believed that, and John Marshall believed that, and James Monroe believed that, and they joined the American Colonization Society. But he never did. Um, and it's interesting to speculate about why he did not do that, since he had said this in letters, that this is what he, what he believed. Um, but I don't know. Uh, that's that's, what, that's a, something of a mystery, uh, why, he did not, why, why he did not officially join. Uh, so um, uh, we've talked about Hamilton. The, the Northern founding fathers are much more free of this taint, as we see it. Right, looking back across the divide, Hamilton, Adams, they, they don't have this stain on them. No. And no, because so how do we reconcile that? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, so how do we? Uh, and so this is always going to be part of the discussion uh, on you know Jefferson, Washington, Monroe, Madison. You know the the, the Southerners. Yeah. But strangely enough, it seems to be more of a discussion on Jefferson. Uh, that's one of the interesting things about the play Hamilton. If you didn't really know anything about American history, uh, you would not know that anybody up on that stage had slaves except Jefferson. It's not something—he is sort of the, the stand-in for all slaveholders. 
the Northerners, uh, the North was not, as historians dis- distinguish between societies that have have slaves and slave societies. In other words, a society where slavery is sort of the backbone of the economic system uh, and the social system in a way, too. The Northerners, Matt, John, Aunt John Adams, it's sort of easier to be anti-slavery when there are no black people there. There's no, I mean, slavery in New England was always negligible compared to Virginia, certainly. And so they didn't grapple with the question in the way that a person who lived in a society where 40% of the people were enslaved black people versus Massachusetts, where you have probably fewer than 3% uh, of the people are, are black. Um, or South Carolina, where it was majority black, by the time of the Civil War, it's three to one. Um, there are different social considerations uh, in those those in those situations. So you're right. Yeah, the Northerners, uh, even though I guess you could say through through trading and banking and so forth, they were involved indirectly, but they were not slave societies. So we don't think of them when you think about. Uh, this whole issue, even though now there's much more uh, attention to the small amount of slavery that was in New England. So you, you and uh, and your co-author Peter Onuf encourage us to 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 think more deeply here. That you say this charge of hypocrisy, and we're uh, maybe we talk about race here is too shallow um, because uh-huh. it's too easy on on his times as fellow white Americans and, and all of us, which we've talked about. And you're encouraging us to see. Jefferson maybe more the way he would see himself. So what, what would you expand upon that? What, how would he see himself with regard to, to race and slavery? My, I think he would, it's funny, because not funny, but at the end of his life, a book peddler comes to Monticello and he asks him about Haiti because there had been some, there would have been a refusal to recognize the Haitian nation uh, after they had uh, thrown out the French and started their own uh, country basically it was called it was Saint Domingue and then it was Haiti, and Jefferson, who did not recognize Haiti when he was president, at this point said, "Well, I would recognize them, but the problem is the white people are too prejudiced against the blacks." So it's almost as if he's saying <laughs> he's not recognizing he's recognizing himself as prejudiced. He's talking about those white people over there. Now, of course. He was prejudiced against blacks, but nobody, he didn't want to think of himself as a prejudiced person. Um, So he would see himself as someone who was making a realistic assessment about how you could have a society with different races living together. When he said about whites, we will never give up our prejudices against blacks. And he said about blacks, they will never forgive us for what we have done to them. And he could not have envisioned a society, a Republican society, that had two levels, you know, first-class citizenship, second-class citizenship. You were either a citizen or you weren't. And in other words, he couldn't see the kind of society that we've had for many years where blacks were second-class citizens in the United States. So he would think of himself as being a realist who was not prejudiced. Uh, he would be 
wrong about that, but that's how he would, he, he wouldn't want to admit that because, well, I don't know. I mean, that's a, a mystery that I've tried to solve, why people who are obviously racist don't want to be considered racist, you know, but that seems to be, that's a strain in American thought that goes all the way back to Jefferson, uh, people who show themselves to have prejudices against black don't want to be seen that way because they think it's bad somehow. So, I, I mean, it is bad, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's why can't you just admit it? But he couldn't admit it. Mm-hmm. Um, and many other people can as well. Um, and uh, he he does seem to be, um, well, the, the famous quote you, uh, you put in the book, famous quote from Henry Adams, 1889. You say it famously set the tone for writing about Jefferson. Uh, this is in Adams' History of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just read a, a, a bit of this. Almost every uh, you, the contradictions in Jefferson's character have always rendered it a fascinating study. Excepting his rival Alexander Hamilton, no American has been the object of estimates of so widely differing and so difficult to reconcile. Almost every other American statesman might be described in a parenthesis, and a few broad strokes of the brush would uh, paint the portraits of all early presidents with this exception, and a few more strokes would answer for any member of many cabinets. But Jefferson could be painted only touch by touch with a fine pencil, and the perfection of the likeness depended on upon the shifting and uncertain flicker of its semi-transparent shadows. That's a famous mm-hmm. quote, and you say it was very influential, uh, does seem to have a, a ring of truth. You push back on it a, a bit uh, in, in the book that uh, that we all have contradictions. At least our popular conception is Jefferson maybe took that to, to a zenith. Mm-hmm. Well, what we try to do in the book is to bring back context and bring back chronology. A lot of times that's sort of ignored in Jefferson's life, that you no, know, I, you know, I shuddered. Think I, I actually, you know, pull out a diary that I kept when I was in college, and and I recognized that person, but some of my thoughts and some of my beliefs, you know, caused me to shake my head now, uh, because I've changed. I'm, I'm the same person, but things have happened. I've gotten married. I have children. I've lost parents. I mean, you're, you you change as life goes as you learn new things and have different experiences. And that's what we, want, we try to do with Jefferson, to sort of take him from his youth to the stage where he's an old man, and some of the things remain the same, but other things change. Um, his views about religion uh, alter over time. So there's, no, there's a tendency to try to want him to be one timeless Jefferson, and then you say, well, he said this, and over here he said that. But it may be that he said this when he was 80, and he said that when he was 25. And there's no accounting for the capacity of human beings or the, you know, the, to change, to, as I said, adapt to their circumstances and adapt to the context. So, uh, yeah, I, I think to try to pin him down and say that there's an essential Jefferson is very, very, is, I think it's, as problematic as pinning any individual down and saying that they are one unchanging thing from the time they were born till they die. He died at you know 83 years old. He died a lot. He lived a long time, and that a lot of changes took place during that time. And we try to reflect those uh, in the way we write about him. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. And I think valuable to to go behind the icon and and get the real person. 
Um, but but the fact that these founding fathers are icons, is, you know, remains right. So it has the the man yeah. himself changed, but what he stands for, what he means, has that, has that changed as well? Oh yeah, over different times it changes. It Jefferson means a lot of things to a lot of different people. I would say the Declaration, his association with the Declaration, has made him a figure that African American people have tried to grapple with from the time that he was alive. I mean, Benjamin Banneker writes to him, um, you know, in the early 1790s, and David Walker, uh, in Walker's Appeal, uh, writes to him, uh, writes about him uh, in the late 1820s, and then Du Bois talks about Jefferson. Everybody deals with him because of the Declaration of Independence. At the same time, there are people who are extreme libertarians, uh, which Jefferson was not, but people see some of the things that he says as speaking to them. So all across the political spectrum uh, and all across races, people want to claim him or use him as an example. Uh, So, yeah, uh, it's I don't see it as something that's ever going to uh, to end, that he will be a controversial figure. I, I saw the other day that there were a number of, um, I guess, professors at the University of Virginia who asked the president of the university not to quote Jefferson anymore. Wow. Um, because of his attitudes about race, which is kind of a hard thing to do at the university that he founded. Right. But, uh, he is that kind of lightning rod figure. Uh, and I think he knew that he would live in the future. That's why he kept copies of all of his letters. He arranged them in a particular way that he wanted them presented to the world. It didn't, the arrangement didn't last. But it, I think he would be very much surprised to see how much of a lightning rod he is <laughs> uh, almost on a daily basis uh, in the country. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to follow up with that. Uh, the, the, the fact that he knew that he would, that was an aspiration. I think uh, most of us want to live on in some form, but he, it, it was, it was, um, I think he, in a very special way, he, he felt like he would live into the future. Um, I want oh, absolutely. To, I want to follow up on this idea of that he saw himself as an antediluvian patriarch as well, and how mm-hmm. unusual that uh, might have been among his uh, fellows and more mm-hmm. um, following this break. Through the ages, time has been a confounding conundrum. Is time something that we are moving forward through, a river that's carrying us forward? Is time a quantity that we store up so that we can waste time and save time? Then art, philosophy, and science all came together to begin unraveling the mystery of time. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is how I die. I'm Robin Young. We'll be backstage with Josh Groban making his Broadway debut in the dazzling new musical Natasha and Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. I do make a pretty grand entrance, I gotta say. I do walk out of those double doors and get to play the first notes of the show. Next time, here and now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Sick with booze. This program is made possible by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires, initiative for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We reached our last segment with Annette Gordon-Reed. Uh, she's winner of the Pulitzer Prize for her previous book, The Hemingses of uh, Monticello, an American Family. Uh, that book also won the National Book Award. She's uh, author of several other books. The latest uh, with fellow Jefferson scholar Peter Onuf is Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination, which explores Jefferson's vision of himself, the American Revolution, Christianity, slavery, and uh, race. You can join this conversation a couple of ways. First, by a toll-free call to 800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Ned Gordon-Reed, um, this, this, uh, you, you write at the very end of the book, um, you say the bright thread that runs through our engagement with Thomas Jefferson is expressed in the key word in our subtitle, imagination. The Virginian self-fashioning project is one with, with which we can identify. Then you go on to, to say, even though, you know, there's some negatives here that we've been talking about. So this, this idea, imagination and, and, and his self-fashioning project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, imagination goes to the notion that Jefferson was a visionary. He actually thought about the future. He actually, having helped found a country, he had ideas about how he thought things would unfold. And the suggestion at the end of the book is that we should try to have that vision as well, an optimistic vision. Uh, we don't accept all of the things. You know, we, we sort of discard the parts of, of the Jeffersonian vision that um, are limiting. Uh, we are a multiracial society and will be a multiracial society. But we do understand, and we can actually believe that the American Republic, uh, as hard as it may be for someone to, to think that now, but the American Republic has something to offer the world. And um, the idea is that we use our imaginations to see how that might come about. So that's the point of, con- of connection. He's an icon. It's not worth worshiping somebody, but to take the best ideas that people have um, the best insights that people have, and run with them as much as as much as we possibly can. And he felt, uh, I think, maybe more than many people, he he did feel like he would live on in the imagination. Oh yeah, yes. There's a, a famous book called Fame and the Founding Fathers by Douglas Adair, and he talks about the fact that uh, the founders wanted to be famous in the sense, not celebrity famous. But they wanted to be remembered for the things that they had done. And certainly the Declaration and founding the University of Virginia and authoring the Statute on Religious Freedom was what Jefferson wanted to be remembered for. And he thought that these were contributions to civilization. And, you know, he hoped that they would be recognized. I want to uh, I want to talk a bit about uh, Sally Hemings. You've written a lot about this. And it, it's as, as I'm thinking about this, reading about this, it I wonder how how radical this was at the time. The, 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 you said their children were seven eighths uh, white and therefore could, could be considered legally white, but she she was not right. So this no. this was a mixed race relationship. How did how did he see this relationship? What how did he see this? Well, I mean, this was not an uncommon thing in Virginia. Uh, one of Jefferson's friends, who's writing about Jefferson and Hemings in his diary, says that this it was a common practice for bachelor or I'm quoting bachelor or widowed slaveholders to take a woman and enslave what to slave woman he said as a substitute for a wife um so mixed race liaisons and whatever you want to call them 
existed. There was also rape, obviously. Uh, African Americans, most African Americans have, I mean, in population geneticists have been able to confirm this through DNA testing that, you know, in, in some areas in the South or, well, throughout the country, African American males from 35 to 43% have European Y male chromosomes. So, and that's just guys um, that, they're, that they're testing. So this is something that was a common practice. So Jefferson was not an outlier here. Uh, what may be different is that he had these people, his, these children, and Sally Hemings were sort of in, on his, in his household, um, whereas he had a number of plantations where they could have been, but they were there along with his grandchildren and other people. So uh, that might have been something of a di- something different. Uh, but these types of connections were were not unheard of. Were actually fairly common in in, in Virginia during that time period. So and, uh, so, and people knew that okay. in, the, in yeah. the community. The north northerners were kind of shocked by it, but uh, people in the south understood that this is something that happened. So this would not have been considered, at least in the South, uh, shocking. I guess, I guess uh, in the North, maybe it could have been used as political ammunition. Uh, I don't know, but was was this? I guess this was in the South would have been sort of matter of course. Yes, it was something that was not. I mean, Sally Hemings herself was Jefferson's wife's half sister. So Jefferson's wife and Sally Hemings had the same father. So this was like a second generation of this thing happening. So. Uh, yeah, the people in the South understood this, but what you were supposed to do was to be discreet about it. Um, You could do it so long as you did not flaunt it, in the sense if the only time these couples got into trouble was, you know, when they tried to act, hold themselves out to be like married people. Um, So these kinds of liaisons, if they were long-term, and this was a long-term, we're not talking about someone, you know, we're not talking about raping, you know, one time or an occurrence or a person going from, you know, slave cabin to slave cabin. This was something, a connection that lasted for 38 years. So as long as you didn't try to present this person as a wife, a legal wife or anything like that, then people left you alone. Oh. You wouldn't have been bothered by it, even mm-hmm. though some people did use it politically against him. But it didn't count. People didn't care. He was reelected resoundingly uh, for a second term. Um, so even though this came out during his first term as president, um, it didn't affect the way people thought about him. And of course, uh, this at least is, his supporters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, to uh, across that uh, historical gulf to to us, uh, you know, it's shocking. Shocking, and properly so, but uh, mm-hmm. at least the you know the the rape and and all of that. Um, I want to go back to at the end. We just have a, about a minute left. This uh, your title, most blessed of the patriarchs, um, mm-hmm. and and uh, have you maybe uh, sum up with this? This is it seems to be this 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 was really how he saw himself. He saw himself this way, and of course we look at this and realize all of the power dynamics that are there, not just between. Uh, in, in him as a, uh, a person who enslaved individuals. We, we see it as a husband, as a father. He had outsized power. Uh, men at that time had outsized power, power that they don't have today, not certainly to own people in, in the same fashion, don't have the same power over wives and children 
that they had at the time period. The key is that he thought of himself as lucky, but he also thought of himself as a person who had a responsibility to the people over whom he had power. That's not, we, we don't accept that. That's not good enough to say that I'm going to do the best I can because we don't think people should have that kind of power. But he did believe, he did see himself as a benevolent patriarch. And that is something, That's a, those are terms that seem uh, like an oxymoron to us, um, that you could have that, but he actually believed that it was possible. Well, very interesting book. We're out of time. Uh, Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination. Annette Gordon-Reed, along with Peter S. Onoff, are the authors. And Annette uh, Gordon-Reed uh, has joined us as part of the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for asking me. And I uh, hope you'll be with us uh, tomorrow. We are going to revisit a very interesting program. Sonic Sea is the documentary takes a look beneath the ocean's surface to uncover consequences of increased ocean noise pollution. That's tomorrow on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.